Daybreak Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barton in Washington. Today is Wednesday, February 8th. And here are some of the stories we are covering. An analyst sees much progress in U.S.-Africa relations since the U.S.-Africa Leader Summit in Washington, D.C. The good point is the U.S. is definitely showing more focus on Africa, and hopefully that'll be a period of, of stronger engagement over the next couple of years. That's what Africans want, and I think many Americans want that as well. The U.S. deploys relief teams to support earthquake survivors in Turkey and Syria. We will speak with a Nigerian PhD student in Turkey about the deadly earthquake. Malawi court stops the suspension of the country's anti-corruption chief. Protesters attack UN peacekeepers in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. According to the secretary of the IDC CAP, he saw some peacekeepers evacuated in an ambulance. So, according to him, some peacekeepers could be injured or killed. And a new song by South African singer Namsibo Sikode wins Grammy Award. Those stories plus our Black History Month facts of the day and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. You The achievements his administration has made, including control of the COVID-19 pandemic and the creation of 12 million new jobs. The president called on Republicans to work with him to unite the country and rebuild what he called the backbone of America. The story of America is a story of progress and resilience, of always moving forward, of never, ever giving up. It's a story unique among all nations. We're the only country that has emerged from every crisis we've ever entered stronger than we got into it. Look, folks, that's what we're doing again. Two years ago, the economy was reeling. I stand here tonight after we've created, with the help of many people in this room, 12 million new jobs, more jobs created in two years than any president's created in four years because of you all, because of the American people. Two years ago... And two years ago, COVID had shut down, our businesses were closed, our schools were robbed of so much. And today, COVID no longer controls our lives. And two years ago, democracy faced its greatest threats of the Civil War. And today, though bruised, our democracy remains unbowed and unbroken. As we gather here tonight, we're writing the next chapter in the great American story, a story of progress and resilience. When world leaders ask me to define America, and they do, believe it or not, I say I can define it in one word, and I mean this, possibilities. We don't think anything is beyond our capacity. Everything is a possibility. You know, we're often told that Democrats and Republicans can't work together. But over the past two years, we've proved the cynics and naysayers wrong. Yes, we disagreed plenty. And yes, there were times when Democrats went alone. But time and again, Democrats and Republicans came together. Came together to defend a stronger and safer Europe. It came together to pass one in a, gen- one in a generation, once in a generation infrastructure law, building bridges connecting our nation and our people. We came together to pass the most significant law ever, helping victims expose the toxic burn pits. And in fact, (laughs) 
is important. And in fact, I signed over 300 bipartisan pieces of legislation since becoming president, from reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act, the Electoral Count Reform Act, the Respect for Marriage Act that protects the right to marry the person you love. And to my Republican friends, if we could work together the last Congress, there's no reason we can't work together and find consensus on important things in this Congress as well. That was U.S. President Joe Biden delivering his State of the Union speech Tuesday night on Capitol Hill. An analyst says much progress has been made in U.S.-African relations since last December's U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in Washington, D.C. President Joe Biden promised at the summit to invest $55 billion towards Africa's development in the next three years. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield visited Africa last month. These visits took place at the same time that China and Russia are increasing their interest in Africa. Tom Sheehy, a distinguished fellow at the Washington-based U.S. Institute of Peace, tells me he senses the beginning of a new partnership between Africa and the United States. It was the first summit since 2014, and Africans were very pleased that the United States uh, held this. But it's all about the follow-up now. And I do sense that the agencies that are responsible for making all these commitments real have really upped their game. I'm talking about the Development Finance Corporation, the XM Bank, the Department of Energy, USAID, TDA. There's a new sense that these agencies must operate together. But this is just the beginning. Inevitably, not all the commitments will be realized. But if a good number are, that'll be success for the summit. This is also going to require a partnership with Africans. It's not just what the U.S. can do for Africa, but it's what the U.S. and African states do together. As you mentioned, uh, Tom, it requires a commitment on the part of African countries. Uh, recently, we've seen almost like a parade of uh, senior U.S. government officials visiting Africa. Treasury Secretary Yellen and uh, U.N. Ambassador uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Uh, at the same time, it appears that Russia and China are also reaching out to Africa. Why now that it appears Africa has become this new focal point? There's been a growing sense in the United States that Africa's been overlooked. There are great challenges, but also many, many opportunities. And so there's some new issues that are driving attention to the continent here in Washington. Of course, we have climate change and Africa's energy mix. There's concerns about how Africans going to meet its, uh, African countries are going to meet their power needs. And there's critical minerals that are needed for the energy transition. And of course, as you mentioned, this rivalry with China and increasingly rivalry with Russia. We also have our traditional interests the U.S. has long cared about, and that's peace and stability and humanitarian concerns. So I think it's a combination of different issues uh, coming out to the agenda. But the good point is the U.S. is definitely showing more focus on Africa, and hopefully that'll be a period of, of stronger engagement over the next couple of years. That's what Africans want, and I think many Americans want that as well. According to one account I have read, China is Africa's largest trading partner. China is also involved in several development projects in Africa. And President Biden often says that uh, China is the U.S.'s biggest uh, competitor. What do you think he's referring to? Is it military or economic? The U.S. competition with China globally is economic and security, including military. In Africa, though, thankfully, there hasn't been military competition with China that we saw during the Cold War, 
when we had the U.S. and the Soviet Union competing and actually fighting by proxy in many African countries. That was very harmful to the interests of Africans. And so while today China is very uh, heavily uh, present economically in many, really most African countries, it's not a military presence on the continent with the exception of Djibouti is the only country that has a Chinese military presence. So Africans have and will continue to do business with China. I think what the Biden administration is saying, and I believe this is right, is that the United States can offer a better deal to African countries than China's offering. That was Tom Sheehy, distinguished fellow at the Washington-based U.S. Institute of Peace. Responding to earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, the United States has mobilized search and rescue teams to support relief efforts. Viewers Veronica Balderas Iglesias spoke with humanitarian workers about the challenges and how people can help. A state of emergency has been declared in Turkey as the number of victims from Monday's earthquakes in the region continues to rise. The government has set up temporary shelters for those who have been displaced. The inside of the tents is good. That's a thousand times better than outside. Already in this rain, the wintertime. Syrian refugees in Turkey and those who have been displaced in northwest Syria are among the most vulnerable and have the greatest need for food and other assistance, UNICEF said on Tuesday. The United States has joined several other nations to support relief efforts. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. We are in the process of deploying additional teams to support Turkish search and rescue efforts and address the needs of those injured and displaced by the earthquakes. U.S.-supported humanitarian partners are also responding to the destruction in Syria. Mobilized by USAID, the Fairfax County Urban Search and Rescue Team prepped for deployment to Turkey. Team member John Morrison explained. We have about 60,000 pounds of equipment here. We're, we're loading 79 people with six dogs. Health concerns will also need to be addressed, notes Arlen Fuller of the U.S.-based humanitarian organization Project Hope. Whether that be waterborne diseases or airborne diseases that are spread through communities that are now living very in clo- close proximity in shelters, uh, you will have a number of different uh, disease vectors that, that will uh, arise after the first few days of, of a disaster. For those who want to help, Sandrina da Cruz of the nonprofit Global Giving has some advice. Cash is first and foremost the most important way to donate. And that is because the needs on the ground fluctuate so quickly. Look at the organizations uh, on Charity Navigator in order to be able to verify that that is a trusted charity entity. Humanitarian workers say it could take weeks for the emergency in Turkey and Syria to move to the recovery phase. Veronica Valderas Iglesias, VOA News, Washington. The death toll in Monday's magnitude 7.8 earthquake and aftershocks in Turkey and Syria has risen to 7,200 and is likely to increase further as rescuers from around the world work to find survivors. Earlier, I reached Mohamed Inouwa, a Nigerian PhD software engineering student in the city of El Lazet in Turkey. First of all, it's so nice to talk with you. Uh, there's a lot going on in Turkey there and we are very concerned. How are you doing? I'm doing good, even though full of fear with the current situation that we are in now in Turkey. But we found out everything is going very well as uh, the government is trying its best to calm the panic. 
when you say the government is trying its best, you're talking about the Nigerian government yeah, or the Turkish Nigerian. government? No, the Turkish government. I don't think that Nigerian government even knows our existence here because we have never received a word from Nigerian government. Are you a Nigerian government scholarship student or you are in Turkey on your own? I'm on my own, depending on my salary. I'm studying here, doing my PhD. Congratulations. Thank you very much. So, Muhammad, where were you when this uh, earthquake took place? Actually, I was at home studying, writing a paper. I had the, really, the shaking wasn't that easy. It was really terrible. I had to stop whatever I'm doing. And um, outside, some people were shouting, running away. But I had to come down myself and my family to stay in one place until it subsided. Where are you located in relation to where the earthquake took place? Actually, uh, you know, the earthquake places are really wide. Um, We are all in the area. It's mostly the eastern part of Tokyo. I I don't know exactly is it eastern or west uh, southern, but mostly you call it the eastern part of Tokyo. As they call it in Turkey, they say Duwu, Turkiye. We're in that area, and uh, my city is Elaze. It's one of the 10 cities that is affected, but we thank God that um, our city is not that um, much destroyed as the other cities that are much closer to Syria. So how are you doing in terms of uh, going about getting your regular or daily activities? For example, going to school, trying to go to grocery, buying food for yourself. I mean, what is it like for people there following this earthquake? Actually, um, as I told you, in my city, it's been hit, but it's not that much because we have least amount of uh, houses that are being dilapidated. But um, the activities of buying groceries, shops are all open regular hours. You can go and buy your things without any problem, though it's really cold here as it's snowy. But um, some other places are receiving really a good help from the government of Turkey. Mohammed, thank you very much again. It's so nice to talk with you, and please keep safe. You're most welcome, Mr. James. That was Mohamed Inouwa, a Nigerian PhD software engineering student, speaking with me from the city of El in Turkey. listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Wednesday, February 8th. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The High Court in Malawi has stopped the suspension of the country's Director for Anti-Corruption Bureau, Martha Chizuma. The government issued the order last week over a leaked audio clip in January 2021 where she alleged high-ranking officials were obstructing the fight against corruption. The High Court has also stopped Chizuma from appearing in court in a case brought against her by some government officials mentioned in the leaked audio. The injunction means that Chizuma can resume her work as director for the Anti-Corruption Bureau. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. Chizuma's suspension last week surprised many people as it came a month after Malawi President Lazarus Chakwera said he would not punish her over the leaked audio and that he had forgiven her. In the audio clip with an unknown person that was later leaked to social media, Chizuma said that high-ranking officials including lawyers, a judge and government authorities 
were hindering her fight against corruption. This prompted some in the audience, including the former director of public prosecution, Stephen Gayuni, and High Court Judge Simeon Indeza, to file criminal charges against her. However, on Monday, the High Court in Blanta granted an injunction against the suspension and charges Jizuma was expected to answer in court. Crispin Ngunda is the secretary for the Malawi Law Society, which sought an injunction. He told a local radio station that the lawyer's body wants the matter to undergo a judicial review. When the Malawi Law Society looked at the relevant law, generally about the independence of the anti-corruption bureau and the, the mandate that the law society has, a decision was made that we should move for judicial review so that the court should review the decisions that have been made. In the judicial review application, the Malawi Law Society is asking the court to review the government decision to suspend Chizuma and also to review the summons the police and the magistrates court issued to Chizuma. So what it means is that Ms. Chizuma is not supposed to be going to court for the time being. She can also go back to her office and resume her duties as the director of the Anti-Corruption Bureau. The Malawi media reported last week that Chizuma's suspension came just hours before the Anti-Corruption Bureau planned to issue arrest warrants for top officials. On Friday, rights campaigners gave Malawi President Lazarus Chakwela until Monday to announce the withdrawal of Chizuma's suspension or face nationwide protests. Michael Gayata is the executive director for the Center for Human Rights and Rehabilitation. He says he suspects the leaked audio was a calculated attempt to bring Chizuma down. And he- it's raising a lot of questions also that the government seems not interested in pursuing the audio issue or the, 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 the guy behind the, the recording. They are interested on, on Martha, which confirms suspicions that uh, this is part of a calculated move to get Martha out. However, in his State of the Nation address in January, Malawi President Tichakwelam said his administration will not intervene in the operations of the Anti-Corruption Bureau. In the meantime, the High Court is yet to set a date for a judicial review into the fate of Jizuma. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. The South African artist who wrote and sang the international hit Jerusalem is still celebrating her new song winning a Grammy Award. She and her collaborators were in Los Angeles over the weekend to collect their prize and spoke to the country's sports, arts and culture minister via Instagram. Vicky Stark reports from Cape Town, South Africa. The song, titled Bayete, praises God. It's performed by Nomkebo Sikode of Jerusalem fame, flutist Verta Kellerman and singer-producer Zex Bantwini. Universal released it just in time to be nominated in the Grammy's Best Global Music category. When accepting the award, Zikode sang a bit of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, The 2019 hit took YouTube by storm with over 500 million views to date, 
but she's involved in a legal battle to get financial compensation. It makes me proud that God chose not only me, also Uvo Taganyanozegs as a vessel of inspiration for every single person out there uh, who has a dream and wants to see themselves at the highest level of whatever career they are in. Kellerman has been nominated three times before and won the coveted award in the Best New Age category in 2015 for his album Winds of Samsara. He says he'd been wanting to work with Zikorda and Bantwini for a while. My favourite moment was when they announced how Nomtlebo screamed right next to me. That was such a joyous and a happy moment. Producer Zex Bantwini agrees. It was really amazing. It's something that I wish for each and every musician. It's like a Nobel Peace Prize for politicians. Sports, Arts and Culture Minister Natim Tetwa congratulated the trio. You are inspiring the nation. Uh, everybody is happy here at home. We wish you were here because your achievement is the nation's achievement. You are raising the flag of South Africa very high. South Africa's DJ Black Coffee won a Grammy last year for Best Dance Electronic Album. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. <laughs> February is Black or African American History Month here in the United States. The idea of Black History Month celebration began February 1st, 1926. As Negro History Week by Dr. Carter G. Watson, it became a month-long celebration in 1976. Now, here are some African American and African history facts for today, February 8th. On this day, 1986, figure skater Debbie Thomas became the first African-American to win the Women's Singles of the U.S. National Figure Skating Championship competition. She went on to win a bronze medal in the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary, Canada, before retiring from amateur figure skating. Also on this day, 1978, Leon Spinks defeated world heavyweight boxing champion then Mohammed Ali. Ali regained the title on September 15 that same year and went on to become the first person to win the heavyweight boxing title three times. On this day in 1986, Oprah Gail Winfrey became the first African-American woman to host a national television talk show, The Oprah Winfrey Show. It became the highest-rated talk show in history, reaching about 15 million viewers a day in the United States alone. The broadcast ended in May 2011 after 25 years on the air. Winfrey now has her own cable and satellite TV channel called the Oprah Winfrey Network. On this day in 1894, the United States Congress repealed the Enforcement Act, thereby making it easier for states, especially in the South, to take away black voting rights. Originally passed in 1870, the Act had established criminal penalties for interfering with a person's right to vote. But after its repeal, Southern states passed a host of measures to block or limit the number of blacks who could vote. On this day in 1925, Marcus Mosiah Garvey, sometimes called the Black Moses, entered federal prison in Atlanta, Georgia, after being convicted of what many blacks felt were trumped-up mail fraud charges. Garvey had built the largest black mass movement in African-American history by emphasizing racial pride, economic empowerment, and the building of a black empire in Africa.
In African history on this day in 1994, a cargo plane crashed in the Democratic Republic of Congo, killing at least several hundred people and wounded more than 500. Most of the people killed were in a marketplace. But when they acted against the airport, a Russian court ruled that the marketplace should not have been so close to the airport in the first place. Therefore, the marketplace was denied compensation. And that's it for this Wednesday, February 8th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for coming aboard with us this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. I am James Barton, Washington, wishing that you will have a wonderful day. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and my guest, Dr. Chris Marsh, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Maryland and author as we mark Black History Month with a discussion on where America stands in achieving Dr. Martin Luther King's vision of African Americans achieving economic freedom. Don't miss this special edition of Press Conference 